Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Day Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons, and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Now, as I said, today we're going to be taking a look at Psalm 44, and it is truly a wonderful passage in many ways, but probably the most precious to me is that it it displays the people who suffer an unimaginable hardship, and yet at the end of it, they still place their hope and trust and confidence in God and God alone. So if you haven't been here the past few weekends, that's actually been kind of a recurring theme, hasn't it? Now, the circumstances in this psalm are a bit unclear with regard to Israel's history, meaning we don't know exactly when this took place and where this took place or who the people are uh, within it, besides the fact, again, that they are sons of Korah. Now, we do know through the content of this psalm, though, that they are at war. They are at war with a brutal enemy, and it is very evident to them and to everyone else that God is not with them. And yet they have a wonderful grasp of the sovereignty of God in the midst of this. They recognize that God has been the one who has not delivered them, meaning he hasn't come to their rescue, that God has even afflicted them, and that God has even sent them as sheep to be slaughtered, and that God has seemingly forgotten about them. Now, the problem of it in every single way is that these people have been faithful. In other words, they are not bringing curses upon themselves for disobedience. They're not being punished for sin or idolatry. They don't trust in their own weapons or chariots or might. They affirm those age-old truths, in other words, that their forefathers have taught them from their youth, which is that the battle belongs to the Lord. And yet, they look around and see that God doesn't seem to care that they are being killed left and right. Like Jesus, asleep in the boat with his disciples, they will even question here why God is asleep. And yet, in spite of all these circumstances, they continue to draw comfort and hope from the one who they know is the sovereign one. They continue to be faithful to the covenant. They continue to worship this Lord, and they continue to cry out to him for help, all because they have resolved to simply trust him. Behind this affirmation of trust and behind this affirmation of God as the sovereign one, there's this implicit reality at display that the New Testament makes abundantly clear or explicit, and that is that all of God's people will suffer. And yet, even through here, they see that this suffering for the sake of God is not simply, or I shouldn't say not simply, but it is not at all a punishment for sin or a punishment from his hand. Rather, it's the means through which God accomplishes his will. They don't understand it all. They don't even pretend to understand it all. And yet, rather, by faith, they continue to place their trust and faith and confidence in God, whom they know is the one that's in control of all of these things and more. But out of this arise four dilemmas. They are four dilemmas, as I'm going to say, as the one who suffers in innocence. And they are just what we've already seen with regard to how they understand God's sovereignty. In all of these things, they they have God as their only trust and hope, and yet, They see that he does not deliver them. He, in fact, afflicts them. He even sends them as sheep to be slaughtered, meaning to their death, and that he seems to have forgotten about them. And so we're going to see all of this and more, but then we will take a look at the explicit reality that the New Testament affirms at the very end of this. 
The first dilemma we're going to turn our attention to now, though, is that they have made God their only trust, and yet they have not seen him deliver them. So look with me now to verses 1 through 8. So this psalmist is going to make a series of complaints here, and he's all directing them towards what he would say is God's inactivity. He focuses in on the fact that God has been well-known among his people from the beginning, but this is simply a foil, or rather a revelation, if you will, uh, to put it in terms that may not be any more clear, uh, giving them an understanding of why things are happening the way they are happening. They are confused, in other words. They see God has, from the beginning, taught his people or rescued his people, and yet he's not rescued them. Notice how he says, oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. Well, the report of God's faithfulness to intervene on behalf of his people has been well known, in other words. As generation to generation comes up, they have continued to taught them or to teach them what they should hear, just as all things should be. And yet this intervention is going to be spelled out for us in verses 2 through 3. But through the rest of the psalm, I really want you to understand this. It's going to be an incredibly bleak picture of just how desperate their condition is. But what they're doing is framing everything in light of verses 1 through 8. So what they're doing is saying that we've seen you work in past generations, and yet you're not working for us. At the heart of all of this is a people that are simply distraught. They're confused over what God is actually doing. And we're going to see this again more as we continue throughout this whole psalm here. But I want you to understand what he's doing as he compiles this whole list of reasons um, before God of what they have known from the beginning and what they are doing. He is justifying his complaints to God. Much like Job stood blameless and desired to plead his case before God, the Israelites here are going to do the exact same thing. And yet the vital difference between them and Job is that they affirm almost immediately that God has a sovereign right over his creation. Now, how he forms his complaint here, notice this, is by drawing a comparison to their fathers and to them, right? So that you have their fathers on the one hand who God very clearly intervened for, and then you have these people who God is not intervening for. So in essence, he says, we've done the exact same stuff here. We've believed everything that they have taught us. We know that God alone is the one who you have, or the one who can win the battle, in other words, and we have placed our explicit trust in him. And yet, God, you have not delivered us. Now for now, again, look with me at verses two through three. We're going to see the psalmist retell of all of what he means here when he talks about God being faithful to their forefathers. So look down with me at verse two here. The psalmist writes, you with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. For by their own sword, they did not possess the land and their own arm did not even save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence saved them for you favored them. Now, this is just very simply an abbreviated form of Israel's history when they went to enter into the promised land with Joshua. Notice, though, that in every single way, they do not claim that their forefathers trusted in their own might, in their own weapons, in their own ability to secure the land, right? They said that God himself was the one who intervened on their behalf in every single step of the way. It was God who drove out the inhabitants of the land. It was God who planted the Israelites in the land so that they would flourish and then settle in every corner of it. It was God who afflicted the people who were in the land before the Israelites. It was not by their own sword and might, but by the very hand and presence of the Father. So 
In other words, the only reason they were able to conquer the pagans in the midst of the promised land was because God had given them victory. That's it. Remember when they were even coming up to the promised land, what did Joshua and Caleb do? They immediately affirmed that we can go in there, we can kill these guys, we can drive them all out. Why? Because God is with us. And yet the rest of the Israelites were terribly afraid. Well, here he's saying, they have taught us all of this. We believe this. We know that the only reason why all of this was done was because you set your favor upon them. In other words, we know that it was pure, undeserved grace and mercy which led the Israelites into the promised land to begin with. From start to finish, the only reason that our fathers had success is because your favor, God, rested upon them. Right? It was born out of God's faithfulness to his covenant. And this becomes incredibly important as we make our way through the rest of the psalm here because he's going to actually frame everything in light of covenant. What the psalmist is saying is that with God, without God's help, the Israelites never would have come into the land. But he's also saying, without God's help right now, we won't stay in the land. In fact, without God coming and intervening on our behalf to display his, his power and his favor among his people yet again, in this generation, we will all die off. But notice this is not a brazen accusation against God. He's not clamoring or being incredibly angry at him. He's actually just simply saying, this is true. This informs the basis of my hope. They too actually trust in the Lord just as their forefathers did. And we see this in verses four through eight. Notice he says, you are my king, O God. You are my king. Verse four, it really is the main point of verses one through eight. And the psalmist is just simply expressing that God is the very foundation of all that they rest their faith on. Now, to say that God is king is a very simple acknowledgement that he is the sovereign one, isn't it? Your allegiance belongs to him and to him alone, and he's going to continue to display this in the following verses, but the major theme throughout this entire psalm is that God is the sovereign one. He is the sovereign one, and therefore we bow before him. But they show an explicit faith in this same God that they know rescued their forefathers. They know God is not only the one who is king, who is deliverer, but he is the one who rules over all things. And as king, he controls all things. Not one thing is outside of the jurisdiction of this sovereign one, even the outcome of a battle. They know their forefathers told them that God secured the Israelites in the land before. God drove them out. They also know that the only reason God did any of this, again, was because of undeserved grace and favor upon them, meaning they didn't merit it. They didn't have their own mighty strength in which they could conquer. It was literally given to them as a gift. And everything, the psalmist is framing things, again, in terms of God's unfailing covenant love. Just as God set his unique favor upon them and swore by his covenant to uphold them and protect them, that same covenant love applies to the Israelites, He has sworn by an oath to protect and preserve and even to advance their kingdom so long as their allegiance remains with him. Now, we're going to find they've actually upheld their end of the covenant. And this is probably why he's in such despair here and wavers back and forth, if you will, because he's looking at as things have been and he's looking at as things are and he says these two, two things don't line up. But what they continue to do is simply ask God, for help. Now, the underlying reason for this, of course, the reason why any of us ask God for help is that we don't seem to get the help that we need or we think we need in the midst of different things, right? 
But notice he also says, command victory for Jacob. Again, the reason for that is that God has sworn by covenant to Jacob that he will give them victory if they are faithful to the covenant. He reaffirms that the people have all submitted themselves to this divine rule of Yahweh. And then he pleads with God. He makes, again, a command of entreaty. There's just this incredible urgency with it, saying that, God, if you don't get up and rise and, and command victory for Jacob, we're dead. If you don't deliver your people, we're dead. As the sovereign one, they know it's well within his capabilities of actually doing so. They know that he can bring them to victory, and yet their current circumstances are anything but victorious. But notice how confident they still are. Notice how confident he remains, even in the face of what seems to be total abandonment. And again, you'll get this display all throughout the rest of the psalm once we get past verse 8. But now look at verse 5. He says, through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will I trust in my sword to save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever, eternally. Now, the psalmist reiterates, just as her forefathers did, they don't trust in the weapons formed by human hands, and they, in other words, believe that in all of their might, God himself must be the one that is victorious. To make it even more clear, human effort will not save them. No amount of energy they put into it will free them from the doom that is at hand. If God does not go out before them, they are helpless. Again, they are doomed to die. And yet they also know they must still go out and battle. Now imagine that prospect. Imagine being an Israelite and you know that you have to go out to fight these men because you're commanded to, for one, but also if you're any kind of man, you're going to go up and rise up so you can protect the women and children in the kingdom, and yet you know you're going to your death. For a fact, you know you're going to your death. That's why these things are so urgent here. They're looking at it and saying that we know our bow and weapons will not protect us. God, you and you alone must rise up for us. And again, we know that you have done so in the past. We know that you've even done it with us in the past. We know that you can do so yet again. Look at me, or look at verses 7 and 8 through again. Look at how they reflect how God has already been faithful. He has already saved these people in the past from their adversaries. He has already put to shame those who hate these people. And yet right now, everything is bleak and hopeless. And again, just as their forefathers boasted in Yahweh, they too have boasted in the mighty works of God. And so day and night, he says, we have, we've trusted in God and God alone. We've actually boasted in all the power that he has, not our own power. And our intent even is to go on praising his name eternally. Though we shall face the scrutiny of death, we shall yet praise him. Now, this is a wonderful statement of faith. And the reason for this, again, is all that comes after verse 8. Even though the psalmist is going to paint this incredibly bleak picture of their defeat and humiliation in the verses that follow this entire section, they still make it their duty and even their delight to praise and to trust him. They still, in the face of insurmountable hardship and even death, swear allegiance to the sovereign one. Now, if you read this psalm, you minimize verses 1 through 8, 
Let's just say you do that. All you're going to do as you read the rest of it is then see this as one long diatribe against God himself. You're going to see it and say, well, this psalmist obviously despises the Lord. He's all, all he's doing is complaining. There's several accusations he's actually going to make here. And so that's in one sense valid, but you must see them in light of the first eight verses. They color the entire psalm. Immediately, they have resigned themselves to God as the sovereign one. And you'll see this all throughout the psalm as well. But these are people who still abide in much faith, and they are still people who are incredibly faithful to their God, in spite of how everything is shaking out. Now, how things look to them is that God has ultimately forsaken them. How things appear as if God doesn't really care if they're being killed left and right. How things seem as if God has forgotten them. And yet in spite of all that, they make it their duty to kneel before the sovereign. And yet there is a refreshingly honest faith in here as well. They know, in other words, that you can bring your complaints to God, good, bad, and indifferent. And indeed, if they are righteous complaints and you can ask him to do only that which he can do, he will actually hear those prayers. And this is ultimately where our psalmist is, is going to lead us today. Right? Things seem hopeless, and yet they still have hope in God. Things seem rather dark and bleak, and yet rather than throw in the towel and forsake God and abandon the faith, they look forward with much faith and confidence. They look forward with much faith and confidence. They don't ignore the reality at play around them. They say, we've actually appeared, or appeared to fall out of favor with you, God. We don't understand why, and yet you are king. The reality is at some point in your life, you're going to undergo, at least in some way, shape, or form, the same dilemma. You're going to wonder, has God forsaken me? You're going to put your hope and confidence in God and not get the outcome that you expect. And some of you have already had that happen to me, so you know, or to you, so you know exactly what I'm saying here. You will be in a hopeless situation. You will wonder why God has not delivered you. You will cast your cares and your hopes and everything on him, and yet it seems to only continue to get worse. Well, the psalmist would just simply say to you, remember Yahweh. Remember your Lord. Remember his faithfulness. Remember how he has been faithful to the generation before you, but how he has been faithful even to you. Remember how you boasted in his power and his salvation Praise him. Bow the knee to the king. Praise him. Praise him now and forevermore. Beloved, our, our faith is not based on the experiential. That is what you experience. Our faith is based on who God is, what he has promised to do. And while we may yet wait for him to deliver us, we must still hold that even if he does not deliver us, even if we die, we praise him. We praise him, for he is worthy. He is king. We do not bow the knee believing the weapons of this age can save us. We do not bow the knee believing that politics or this world or anything else in it will save us. We do not fall prostrate before the various gods which cannot deliver, which cannot deliver. We will not place our hope in this life, and sometimes that means that we die. In fact, for all of us, we will die. The matter is not if, but simply when. 
when you're met with the dilemma of what seems to be God's inactivity in the midst of whatever trial you may be going through, the ultimate question is if you will still submit yourself to him as king, if you will still hope in him, if you will still praise him. That's the first dilemma of the one who suffers in true innocence. And I mean true innocence, not because of sin, but true innocence. Now look with me to verses 9 through 16, and we see the second dilemma here of the one who suffers in innocence is that they have made God their only hope, and yet he has, in return, afflicted them. He starts in verse 9, again, in light of verses 1 through 8, and yet you have rejected us and brought us to dishonor, and you do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary, and those who hate us have taken the spoil for themselves. You give us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply, and you have not profited by their sale. Doesn't the mood just radically shift? The psalmist begins here by saying, God, you have rejected us. And the word he uses in the Hebrew is not just simple rejection. It is actually used to describe something that has become utterly foul-smelling. He's not saying God has just simply turned his back on them, but that the Israelites have become odious. They are putrid and defiled in his nostrils. And so he has put them to open shame. Now, the psalmist is going to pick up on this idea again in verses 13 through 16, where he, he just simply describes the fullness of their shame. But notice that he describes this utterly defeating or devastating defeat they have suffered at the hands of their enemies here. Earlier, he said, God, we know that you've performed these mighty deeds for our forefathers. You rescued them from their enemies. You've even rescued us before. Yet we can only conclude you have not gone out to battle before us. Even though we do not rely on our weapons for victory, even though we do not place our trust in any other thing, you, God, have turned your back on us when we most needed you. In many ways, they're uttering the same words of Jesus Christ on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Or of the psalmist David, why have you forsaken me? This is why I say it's just a brutally honest psalm and a brutally honest prayer. You don't get much stronger language than this, do you? To say then to God, you have rejected me. Why have you forsaken me? We have become odious to you. We are putrid in your sight. Now notice he just continues to pile on from here. Verses 10 through 12, he explains just how badly they were defeated by their enemies. In verse 10, he says, God caused them to actually flee from the battle in terror. He gave them over to their enemies as food, and of course, to the victors go the spoil, right? And as a result, they were then scattered or dispersed among the nations, meaning they're actually driven out of the land. All of this describes the curses that are found in Deuteronomy 28, and I'm going to actually just reference that a little bit later, but the reality is that all of these things describe the punishments of God upon a people who have been disobedient or disloyal to his covenant. He says, we've not only suffered an agonizing defeat, we're actually driven out of the promised land, the land that you, you swore to uphold us in and to plant us deep in, to not uproot us out of unless we were unfaithful. And that's what's utterly bewildering to them. We're going to see this just more in a few short verses, but they've actually remained faithful to God. 
You know, this is the inspired word of God, and they can claim with no guile, we have remained faithful to you. Then look at verse 12 here first, though. You have sold us at a discount rate. Garage sale prices, if you will. You've not even profited by our sale. Picture it like you're just slapping stickers on things because you're trying to get them out of the house. You don't want them. It's all rubbish. You want to try and get a little bit out of them, but it doesn't really matter what you get out of them. You can't throw it in the garbage because you can't bring yourself to do that, and yet you're going to throw basically what little value or assign what little value to it that you can and call it essentially useless trash. The irony of it all is that these people know that God has called them a priceless jewel. And yet you have sold us at garage sale prices. They cannot fathom why God is doing this. It just does not make sense. And yet to add insult to injury, they're not just defeated. They have their nose rubbed in the stink, if you will. Verses 13 through 16. Notice what he says here. Notice all of the words that he just piles on. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overtook me or overwhelmed me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. Again, notice how he just heaps up word after word after word to describe really how they've been humiliated. They have become a reproach, a scoffing, a derision, a byword, and even a laughing stock. All of these are words that just simply describe how in every single way they've been treated as a thing of contempt. They're utterly hated. They're ridiculed. They're mocked. They're slandered. Whatever word you want to throw to it, And all I can picture is just this little fledgling child, if you will, who comes before somebody and they, instead of welcoming him, they just beat him mercilessly over and over and over again. They strike him. They're so much stronger than him. He's helpless to do anything about it. And all the while, as they receive blow after blow after blow, they just taunt him mercilessly. It's this never-ending barrage of literal wounds and insults because the Israelites' enemies are just surrounding them constantly. They do not let up. They don't have any intention to let up. They want to beat them to a pulp. Notice how he calls these people, though, the avenger in verse 16. The psalmist has no idea what they've done to deserve it, but he recognizes they are the avenger. They're the one, in other words, whom God has actually sent. In other words, God sends these people to beat them and to mock them without mercy for his purposes. It's little wonder why then that the psalmist simply states that this has been his constant fixation day and night. I mean, it would be yours. You can't help it. The way he describes his shame and humiliation here in verse 15 is that they're like a, a shroud or a cloak over him. They go before him and around him at all times. He is absolutely covered in shame. He can't overscape or escape the overwhelming presence of his enemies because they don't let him escape. They do not leave him alone. They have no intentions to leave him alone. Like a schoolyard bully, they just do whatever they can to make him feel miserable. And yet notice how in all of this, I mean, literally all of it, he ascribes this to God. 
In other words, he, he doesn't avoid the unpleasant reality of the sovereignty of God. He doesn't say the devil did it. He doesn't foist the blame upon these people as if they somehow thwarted the will of the Almighty. He doesn't say that God is a helpless bystander. He's just merely watching it all unfold, powerless to do anything until it's done. And then he will step in. No, he says this is God acting. God has been the one to reject them. God has intentionally avoided the battle. He has caused them to flee in terror. I mean, literally look down with me and just see how he says, you, 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 you. God intentionally sold them at garage sale prices. He says, you have sold us to be eaten alive and uprooted us from the land. You made us a reproach, a scoffing, a derision, a byword, and a laughing stock. You sent our enemies. You have given us into their hands. You have brought shame and humiliation upon us because of the reproach and revilement of my enemy. Shame and humiliation have been my constant companions rather than you, God. They made God their only hope, their only hope, and yet in return for their devotion, he says, you have afflicted me, God. Again, brutally, brutally honest. He feels every bit of the pain and the rejection from the Lord, and yet his theology will not let him take things and pass them off to somebody else. He knows that God is sovereign. And yet his theology is so good, again, he doesn't know why, but he does know that God has done it. He rests in that, though. He rests in that. This is where some of you might be getting a bit squeamish and actually uncomfortable in your seats because you know that once you go there, you know it has to mean something, don't you? You know that God is not merely in charge of all the good stuff that comes your way, but all of the bad stuff too. You can't avoid that conclusion. The sovereignty of God is an incredibly sobering reality. And the reason is because it necessitates that every single thing that happens to us in this life is not merely some passive or permissive act of God where he just stands by and lets it all unfold. He is the one who is actually unfolding it. When affliction comes our way, when suffering comes our way, when defeat comes our way, when we get fired from our job, when our kids reject the faith, all of that stuff, beloved, is by the hand of God. Now, the book of Job is perhaps one of the finest examples of God bringing affliction upon a righteous people, right? Really treating the sovereignty of God without blushing and showing a man who really did nothing to earn any of it, right? If you are familiar with the book of Job, he is described as a blameless man, an upright man, and one who fears God. In every aspect, he's one who actually loves the Lord. He continually turns away from evil, the scriptures say. And yet what happens, but that Satan strolls into the throne room of God, doesn't he? Satan strolls right before him. And you can just imagine kind of that flagrant attitude. God questions the devil and says, what are you doing? Walking to and fro. Have you considered my servant Job? God says that. Satan doesn't come in and ask about Job. God says, have you considered my servant Job? 
And God says of him, there is no one on earth as righteous and as God-fearing as he is. And Satan just says, well, that's just simply because you have made life easy. Put forth your hand and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. That's a bit interesting, isn't it? We tend to skip to the next verse where it says that God gave Satan permission to go and afflict Job, but we miss out on that detail where he says, put out your hand and you touch him. But surely that's Satan. He's stretching the truth, isn't he? Well, Satan kills all of Job's kids. He takes away everything in his possession. And do you know what Job says? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. Yahweh giveth and Yahweh taketh. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. Well, surely Job is mistaken as well. It couldn't have been God who afflicted Job and took away his children and everything he had. I mean, we know that had to have been the work of Satan, right? Had to have been the work of these invaders who came in and destroyed all that he had. Well, the scriptures say in return for what Job says here, that in all of this, he did not sin with his lips, nor charge God with wrongdoing. But Satan's not done. He strolls once more before the Almighty, and God again says, have you considered my servant Job? This time, Satan is allowed to afflict him with a severe illness, and he has boils all over his body. As Job scrapes the blistering boils from his back with a broken piece of pottery, his wife asks, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job responds, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept evil, you foolish woman? Whoa, I mean, surely Job is, he's gone too far this time, right? Evil? Well, the scriptures say again, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job is a man who knows that both good and calamity, both ra'ah, that is evil, and that which is good, come from the hand of the Almighty, that nothing escapes his grasp. And yet he does not charge him with evil. God is king. God is sovereign. What we find then throughout the rest of the book is that Job is this one who correctly identifies all of these things come from God, right? He's done nothing to deserve it, and so he wants to bring his complaints before the Lord. He has that burning question of why, and when, fi- when God finally talks to him, he responds to him, the scriptures again say, he came out of a whirlwind. And he says to Job, who is this who obscures my counsel and words without knowledge? Now brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall inform me. And all of God's people shuddered. He peppers Job with questions for two straight chapters, and Job just simply is had enough with it. He knows he's done something incredibly stupid. And he says, behold, essentially, I'm just an insignificant worm. How can I respond to you? I placed my hand over my mouth. And God says, once more out of the whirlwind, brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you and you shall inform me. We're not done yet. For two more chapters, he endures unrelenting questions from the sovereign one. And when God is finished, Job says, I know that you are the king. I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Surely I have spoken of things I did not understand, things far too wonderful for human comprehension. 
Therefore, I take my words back and I repent in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, Job echoes much the same as our psalmist does in verse four. You are my king, O God. When all is said and done, literally when all is said and done in scripture, scripture doesn't treat the sovereignty of God as a thing of controversy, but a thing of worship. Much like Job, much like the psalmist, what alleviates the dilemma that we are faced with when we, we don't get essentially what we desire, we don't get our way, or when we see God even afflict us, is that we resign ourselves to him as the sovereign one, as the king. He's the rightful king over all things. We recognize, in other words, we are just a man and he is God. Now, many things, many things are far too wonderful for our understanding. It's interesting that he uses the word wonderful, isn't it? Far too wonderful for our comprehension. When feelings betray, when reasons betray, you must root yourself in the objective truth of who God is and hold fast to the faith, beloved. Some things are far too wonderful for human comprehension. At some point in life, you're going to find, again, that you simply don't always get an answer to the burning question of why, or you don't get what you most desperately desire, and it's not even a bad thing. It's not even a bad thing that you desire. And sometimes you just won't find that you get it. And yet the question remains, will you bow the knee? Will you boast in him? Will you praise him, beloved? Will you praise him as king in spite of circumstances? That's what these people are doing here. I'm brutally honest, right? There's no mincing words or holding back with any of it. And he says, you are my king, O Lord, command victories for us. Again, this informs the entire psalm here. Even verse 8, we will praise you forever. We will give thanks to your name forevermore. All of this is grounded in rooting them in the faith that they have held since their youth because they have been taught the rich truths of who God is and they actually believe it. They still see him as the sovereign one and they see that all these things come from his hand and yet they still trust and hope in him because they know he is a good God. Now this becomes all the more important as we consider the next dilemma they are faced with in verses 17 through 22. Again, they have made God their only hope and yet he has sent them as sheep to be slaughtered. He sent them to die. He says here in verse 17, All of this, all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. Isn't that just precious? We have not forgotten you, and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Once again, he frames everything in light of covenant. Specifically, he has in mind what's called the Palestinian covenant, or more clearly, it's that covenant that God swore uh, between himself and Israel in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, that before they came into the promised land, right, Moses comes down. He not only gives them the Mosaic covenant, but he gives them the Palestinian covenant. Now, God works through covenant in the Bible. It's important for us to understand how these things work and not simply gloss over books like Deuteronomy because they all come to bear in places like this. They shape how you read entire sections of the Bible. Now, what the psalmist is referencing here ultimately is a series of promises that God had given them if they are faithful Right? If they uphold their obligations to the Palestinian covenant, God will bless them. 
But if they are disobedient to that covenant, God says he will curse them. Again, all the way back in Deuteronomy 28. Now, you don't have to flip there, but I'm going to simply reference them. You can find the actual specific references to the verse numbers in the notes. But in Deuteronomy 28, verses 1 through 14, God says, If you remain faithful to worship me and me alone and to obey all that I have commanded, I'll make you a prosperous people. He will rise and defend them against their enemies. He will give them an abundance in livestock livestock and crops and children, and they will never be uprooted out of the land that he has planted them in. Never. And yet in Deuteronomy 28, 15 through 68, a much larger section, there are a series of curses that are promised that they go after false gods and they are not faithful to obey the covenant. So not only does he say that they will fail to have abundance in all those things he formally promised them, but if they do have daughters and sons, they will be sold as captives. They will go away as slaves, they will experience plagues and famines and blights and pestilence and everything else of that sort. And when enemies come to battle against them, they will suffer utter humiliation and defeat. Specifically, this is where it gets interesting. He says, they will become a thing of horror, a byword, and a thing of ridicule. Worst of all, they will be uprooted from the promised land. They will become slaves to foreign nations themselves. All of that sounds very much like our psalm, doesn't it? It sounds exactly what they are experiencing, especially when you look at it and say that they are a byword, a thing of ridicule among the nations. And yet, he says, we have not forgotten you. We have not been disobedient to the covenant. And why is all that important? Well, everything that they are experiencing right now would seem to lead them to believe to the contrary. It would seem to lead to the fact that they have somehow forsaken their obligations, that God is not the one who's been you know, unfaithful, if you will, but that they have been the ones who have been disobedient in, in every measurable way, though they have been faithful. And so this is really a conundrum for them. They, they just don't get it. But notice how he moves from this external obedience to the covenant to an internal love and devotion to God, an internal obedience, if you will. Verse 19, he says, Our hearts even have not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your way. And yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death, again, veiled us with death. For the psalmist, he can actually say with a clean conscience that we have obeyed you, Lord. Our hearts are devoted to you. They are not torn after other things. We are not hypocrites. We have not tried to work our way around your commandments somehow as many of the other people did at some point. Right? Remember the book of Amos? That's all they did was work around the commandments. They may have obeyed them in practice, and yet their hearts were far from God. He says that we, with a whole heart and soul, have poured our life into walking in your ways. It's just another way of saying that they have made it their entire life purpose to love and obey God. Even in spite of what seems to be a failure on God's part, they are still found faithful and obey. Even though they look out and they can't make sense of it, they are still faithful and obey. Remember, verses 1 through 8, again, 1 through 8, again detail the fullness of what this psalm teaches. All this comes to bear as he's bringing all these different complaints before his God. They still have not abandoned their duties. They still love the Lord their God. They still have a promise of 
praise. But he says, in response to all of our devotion, you know, we, we submit ourselves to you as king, and yet you have left us to die. We hear the laughter of the jackals as they close in and tear apart. Now again, he continues in verse 22 to just argue over the fact that they have been faithful. This time he appeals to the fact they've not gone after strange gods. So look with me now at verse 20 through 22. He says, If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended our hands to a strange God, would not the God of this universe find this out? Would not the sovereign one know? Again, he appeals to both actions and hearts before God. And he says, we have not worshipped other gods. Even in our hearts, you know this is true, Lord. He shows that even though God has not gone out before them in the battle, that he's actually caused them to be slaughtered and ridiculed and shamed, they've still not turned aside. If they had, he says, oh, Lord God, wouldn't you know? You know all secrets before you. There's not one thought in my mind or in my heart that is bare before you or left concealed before you, rather. You have laid it bare. Even our hearts have remained pure before you and devoted for you. You haven't exposed sin to us. We've not been foolish and tried to hide any sin in our hearts. We have made our sacrifices and vows. We've come before you faithfully, and we have not become hypocrites in your sight. We know that you see all and know all. You are completely sovereign, And so he just highlights this all the more here, doesn't he? Well, God knowing the intricate details of your heart or the heart of man means he has insight into the very thoughts and the intentions of the thoughts as we know in Hebrews, right? So all these men can actually stand before God and and actually say this. (laughs) You know our heart, Lord. For the psalmist here, this is actually an incredibly good thing, though. He has what is a heart that is holy, that is WH holy, devoted to God, even though they are being slaughtered right and left. They still have this implicit faith that God, who says he is going to do what is right, will do what is right. And yet we see this all the more in verses 21 through 22, or rather I should say just 22 at this point. He says, but for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Right? For your sake, we are killed. We're going to return to the idea of what it means to be sent as a sheep before the slaughter at the end now, but I want you to realize there's this implicit reality at display here. He's using cultic language. The whole time he's been referring to his innocence before God, that the people have been innocent before God. They have a pure heart before God. They have actually been obedient to the covenant before God. They're not saying we're morally perfect. What they are saying, though, is that we've we've actually done good before you. And he says that, You're using us as a blameless sacrifice for your sake. You are well pleased to take us as an offering, in other words. They have been innocent sufferers, and God in his sovereignty has been pleased to send them to die for his purposes. In the grand scheme of things, he recognizes they're martyrs. They're martyrs for the sake of the king. The implicit reality of suffering here, again, it's just made explicit in the New Testament, is that now you can see, now you can find the hope informed throughout all of this and the resignation to God as the sovereign one that they don't see this as a punishment or a curse. 
they resign themselves, in other words, to the fact that this is merely the vehicle God is using in his will. For your sake, we are being slaughtered. They don't understand his purposes here. They don't even pretend to understand all of his purposes here as to what he's doing in all of it. They don't even understand to under, or pretend to understand how it all fits in terms of the covenant. And yet they still resign themselves as sheep to be slaughtered for the sake of the king because they trust that he is working all things according to his divine counsel and for their good inevitably. Again, they realize they are martyrs for the sake of the king. They know once more the time for battle shall come, they shall take up the sword and many will go to die. God has been pleased by their sacrifice for unknown reasons to them. Yet they still trust him. They still love him. They still bow the knee to him as king. You have an old word for it named fealty, utter devotion to the king, utter devotion. They would have every reason to think that God has abandoned them. And yet, even as they look out and see that and express that thought in their hearts, they still cry out to him for help. They cry out to him for salvation. They still trust in him. It's good and proper and right. Even though they're resigning themselves that they're going to be killed, they're still saying, God, rescue us. Again, remember Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he pray for? If it be your will, let this cup of suffering pass for me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours. They're asking God to deal with evil and put an end to their suffering. And they're going to do so yet again in the final few verses here. So look with me now where we're going to see that final dilemma on display of the one who suffers in innocence. They've made God their only hope, and yet they seem, or he seems to have forgotten them. And notice what he says here, starting in verse 23. He says, Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake and do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and oppression? Now that language is oddly similar, isn't it? Now, you might think of Elijah when he's talking about the false gods in 1 Kings 18, but here the psalmist uses it against God himself. He says, why are you asleep, O Lord? Do not reject us forever. Do not hide your face and forget our affliction, our oppression. Save us. The major difference is that they know God never slumbers nor sleeps as the false gods sleep but they know the severity of their affliction, don't they? God has not come to the rescue. Like Jesus asleep on the boat, they wonder, why are you not saving us? They've done nothing to draw his scorn, and yet what they continually see is affliction. When he speaks of God hiding his face from them, forgetting their affliction, their oppression, this is similar again to the cry of the people in Egypt, isn't it? In all of it, we just see that they're a people who are desperate. They're desperate for God's help. They're desperate for God's rescue. They're desperate for his intervention, just as he intervened in the past with the people, just as they've seen him intervene for them. And yet they have resigned themselves as sheep to be slaughtered, if indeed it is God's will. They also know he might just as easily be pleased to save them. They don't know the will of the sovereign one, and so they cry out for his help. They throw every bit of their desperation to the one who they know can help. 
They don't, in other words, reject God. They don't, in other words, despair and lose hope. They appeal to the same covenant that they're perplexed over in the middle of it. This is good. It's godly. It's even right for them to do. But that covenant never guaranteed they would not suffer. Nor does the new covenant. In fact, the new covenant makes it explicit. We will suffer. Now, we may not like how they appeal to God throughout this entire psalm, and I think much of it has to do with the fact that we have these Christian niceties and pleasantries that we're prone to think in rather than in biblical terms. We don't think we can be brutally honest with the God who actually knows the brutally honest thoughts of your hearts already. When suffering and hardship and evil come our way, if we take up God's word and ask him to be faithful and to deliver us, there's nothing wrong with that. But we also must do it with an awareness that he is the sovereign one. His deliverance may involve further pain and hardship simply on our road to glory. In other words, we may die. The glories of eternity are the ultimate reference point for the child of God. Again, think of verse 8. We will praise you forever. We will give thanks to your name forever. Earthly deliverance from suffering is possible from the one who controls all things, but suffering is often what pleases God. Sometimes that means that we die by the hands of those who hate us. That is the cost of living in a world at war with its creator. Now look with me now to the final two verses. He says, For our soul has sunk down into the dust, our body cleaves to the earth. And again, he's just painting how bleak the picture is for them. He says, Just as man was taken from the dust of the earth, to the dust we shall return, essentially. We have one foot in the grave. We're merely waiting for that final breath. And yet, from the reality of their impending death springs hope that once more, the sovereign one might rise. Rise up, be our help, redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness, for your chesed, that same rich Hebrew term that we've seen over and again throughout the Psalms. Now, the first three terms that rise up, that help and redeem, are just different aspects of salvation that he's appealing to here. But the most wonderful of all three is that word redeem. It's a word that we often translate as ransom. He's saying, buy us back, Lord. You sold us at a discount rate, buy us back. Make us your possession once more for the sake of your hesed, for your covenant love. We know that you have displayed your favor upon your people from the day you called Abraham. And we are asking yet again that this same covenant love would be towards us what you meant it for him. That just as you brought the people into the promised land, that you would secure us, that you would battle for us, that you would save us. So despite the dilemma of seeing that God, they believe, has forgotten them, they are still casting every bit of their hope upon him. They are still looking at him and saying, you can undo all of this. The simple application for you and I is that you and when we're faced with a dilemma of putting our faith in God or our hope in God, and yet it seems like every single thing just continues to spiral out of control and get worse, you must look upon his covenant faithfulness. He cannot go back on his word. You will face all sorts of dilemmas in your life. You will suffer through all of these different ones at one point or another. 
You will taste affliction. Beloved, you and I will die. We will die. For all you and I know, we may be counted as one of the martyrs, one of the few that the world is not worthy of. Even if you never pay the ultimate price for your faith, though, you will undoubtedly come to a point where you wonder if God has simply forgotten your suffering. Return your sight upon his faithful, unfailing, covenant love and cry out to him. Ask him to do only that which he can do. He may not grant it, but he just as well may. But regardless, nothing will separate you from the love that is within Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you from that. That's the implicit reality of this psalm. That's what's obscured in one way because they didn't have the fullness of revelation given to them. Nothing can remove you from the covenant love of God. That's what they hold on to. That's what they believe. And now we see the explicit reality in Romans 8. So if you can make your way there quickly, then let's go ahead and do that. But if not, then that's okay. Just simply follow along because I'm largely going to just summarize all of this. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 38 in particular. But first I want you to just notice that Paul's framework here is set in light of all the glories to come. That is eternity. So back in verses 18 through 25, in chapter 8 again of the book of Romans, Paul talks about this reality of human suffering in a broken and a fallen world. And he says this world is eagerly awaiting its redemption. It's groaning. And he says that the sufferings we undergo now are incomparable to the glories to come when Christ sets all things right. In other words, when everything is finally redeemed and set new. He says, we groan, we hope, we persevere, we wait for the redemption even of our bodies because our bodies are falling apart. And you and I know this just as well as anybody else. The reason for all of this is simple. We are longing for the day when sin and all of its effects are finally defeated and set to the grave or the lake of fire, rather. We wait for the day when God will finally deliver us in full. Then in verses 26 and 27, he says that in the same way that this hope of glorification sustains us, right? That hope of what is going to come and being made new, the spirit sustains us. He says he knows precisely how to intercede on our behalf, that he takes and shapes our prayers. He actually transforms them from from bad prayers into ones that will actually match the will of the Father. And so all of that is done because we need to be able to reach the finish line. Right? We need to go into glory. And so this is in the same way that this hope of glory is set before us. The Spirit intercedes on our behalf so that we will actually make it. Then in verses 28 and following, notice how he just continues to draw all of this out more. Now, verse 28, he says that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Right? That's often a band-aid verse that people just kind of slap on whatever trial or hardship you're going through. But that good has a specific purpose. Notice the purpose clause here in verses 29 through 30. He says that good is explicit. God is working all things together for good in this very explicit way. Human suffering has a purpose that culminates in glory. Tragedy, suffering culminates in glory, beloved. That means every bit of your life from start to finish is designed to sustain you 
all the way until your final salvation, all the way until the day either Christ calls you home or sets all things uh, brand spanking new on this earth. He actually is making all of it work towards your glorification. He sees to it that from eternity past to eternity future, that one day you're going to be glorified. It's a guarantee for those in Christ. All of your groaning, all of your longing for a world free from sin and Satan and death and all the effects of it shall be satisfied in the fullness and the richness of God's saving love through Christ from here through eternity. That's incredible. Your inheritance is so secure, he says here, in verses 31 through 35, that we not only have a God who is for us, we not only have a God who who freely gives us all things, we not only have a God who justifies, we not only have a God who intercedes on our behalf, not just simply through Christ, but in the Spirit, or in, um, yeah, rather the Spirit, we have a God who guarantees no human and no amount of suffering of evil can separate us from his love. Not one bit of it, guys. He says, therefore, in 36, and this is where he quotes our psalm, we are confident martyrs being put to death all day long for his sake. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, in other words, can keep us from seeing God's final deliverance on display. Absolutely nothing can keep us from glory. Absolutely nothing. Nothing can keep us from one day coming into the presence of our King, and that is the unfailing covenant love of God on display. That is a sure promise for all who trust in Christ. In all of it, I must remind you once more of the dominant theme throughout this psalm, is that is the sovereign God that we worship, the sovereign love of God even here is on display. There's not one square inch of creation over which God is absent. Not one square inch. There is not even one millisecond outside of his control. There's not anything that escapes his grasp. Though we may indeed go as sheep to the slaughter, it is for his sake and for his good pleasure, but ultimately it is for our good, and that means our glorification. It's so much more than that lovey-dovey Christian feeling of sentimentalism, isn't it? It means that we're going to glory, guys. Suffering is merely the fiery chariot that our Lord used us to transport us to glory. The sovereignty of God in all of this, it's just not something that provides us with fuel for fodder for debate. It's not something so we can stick it to those who don't believe it. It's not a branch of obscure theology meant to be thought of from the ivory tower of academia where it's unsearchable and irrelevant to the common man. The sovereignty of God, again, it's not even this matter of debate in Scripture. It's a matter of worship. And the reason for this is simple. It is a thing that brings profound comfort and hope because it means that even in your darkest moments, God is working all things according to the counsel of his will, and that includes your suffering. 
He is working all things to bring you to glory. We may not understand his purposes in our suffering. We may even sense God has forgotten about it. But if we are Christ's, he gives us the confidence to boldly say with Paul that the glories of the life to come far surpass our immediate trials and tribulations. Far surpass. We don't place our hope in the things of this world, nor do we bow the knee to the gods of this age. We know with confidence We know with confidence for certain that it is the soul-saving love and undeserved favor and mercy of God that shows that we are safe in the grasp of the Almighty. Not just eternally, but in every single moment of your existence. Every single moment. The will of the Sovereign One, our God and King, Jesus Christ, is supreme. If you're in Christ, the same God who set the stars and the planets in the heavens upholds you by the might of his hand. You cannot escape his grasp, and you need not fret. Let's pray. Father, you are incredibly good and merciful and kind to us in more ways than we can even count. I know that my heart has soared at your graciousness to us. That even though we are lowly sinners who deserve nothing but eternal punishment, you have seen fit to give us Jesus. That you have saved us from our sins. You have made us spotless and blameless in your sight because you have loved us. And you have set that love upon us that we might be transformed into his image and walk in righteousness. But more than this, Father, we know that we can walk in much confidence in this life, for nothing escapes your sovereign gaze, nothing escapes your grasp. In all things, you uphold us by the sheer might of your word and your power, but you uphold us delicately in your hand as our Father. You nurture us, you sustain us, you see to it that we will make it to the very end, and we need not worry. We know that in your grasp, You will not lose one whom you have given to Christ. And so we thank you from the bottom of our hearts that this is true for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We may not know what you are doing in the midst of our trials. We may not even endure well through half of them. But we know, Father, that if we are in Christ, that it is not the intensity of our faith which saves, but that it is the object of our faith It is Christ himself who will see to it that we make it to the end. And I pray that your people would be emboldened and encouraged and inflamed in their hearts to love and devote themselves to you once more, knowing that in every single way, shape, and form, you care for them. It's not merely that this is a branch of theology in which you are in control, but that you deeply, deeply love us. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.